0: You're listening to episode 10 of season 13 of the GNU World Order for 2019-062. Hi everyone, this is Klaatu, your friendly host, and... This episode is gonna be a lot more about coffee than you might have first thought. Turns out I've got listener feedback about coffee, and it it got me thinking. So, we're gonna talk about coffee. And after that, we'll talk about... we'll start down the... the... you applications in the A package set of Slackware. So let's get started. Listener feedback really is, is the thing that, that kicks this off, because someone named Alexi has emailed me and said, I've been listening to your shows on and off for quite a long time now. Since Bad Apple time, wow, that's a long time ago. Uh, but I've never written to you. I'm from Mas- M- Moscow, Russia, and if you'll ever decide to come visit Moscow, give me a shout. I'm no no—I'm not a good guide, but I'll be able to provide you with some directions and maybe general help. That's very cool. I would love to go to Russia. I think that would be amazing. Um, I'm kind of a- i guess I don't really consider myself- like, I don't call myself a history buff, but I guess I must be- in some way, because it really, really intrigues me to visit places, you know, with a deep and rich history. I mean, I know a lot of places have a deep and rich history, I mean, the world is a pretty old place, but some places, I guess, have a better handle on it than others, and I, I don't know that Russia has a great handle on their own history, but I always it, it seems like it. From the pictures that I see, it always seems like, like they're just really, really rich in kind of their own, their own historical significance, really. And then they have such a, a crazy history to, to explore. I mean, a lot of the early anarchists were, were Russians, which, which appeals to me a lot. Now, one thing about Russia is that they all they, they have borscht there, and I love borscht. A friend of mine, the same friend actually who introduced me to what she called Greek coffee, she introduced introduced me to borscht back in, in New York when I was living there for a while, and it was just, yeah, the most amazing discovery, because I don't think I'd ever had a beetroot in my life up to that point, and to then be having it as a soup that actually tasted really, really good was quite... Quite a good experience. Okay, anyway, Alexey, again, he says, Regarding coffee, I do like black coffee, but I'm in no way a coffee gourmet, or even very knowledgeable on the topic. I'm not sure I can tell apart good coffee from mediocre. I was quite surprised when you talked about Russian-Greek-Turkish coffee. As far as I know, the way of making coffee you've described is exactly the basic way most people make coffee here in Russia, and I always presumed you've always made your coffee in a sim- similar fashion. Can you elaborate what exactly is different the way that you are, you make coffee in the U.S.? Well, I will, Alexei, but, um, Alexei, but I, um, I, I will first finish the email. Because that's a big question, right? Just saying, oh, how do you make coffee? That's a huge question. So anyway, uh, some people own coffee makers, and then it's coffee from a coffee maker. But if you don't own or want one, you buy either coffee beans and grind them yourself, or you buy the pre-ground coffee. Coffee Gourmets say that... I think he means gourmands. I think the term is gourmands. I have to say that, because I, I keep reading it as written, and I keep thinking it should be Coffee Gourmands. Coffee Gourmands say that to grind yourself the beans yourself is better, but I personally can't tell the difference. So if you don't own a briki, you can use a small pot instead. It's not quite as cool as a briki, but again, I can't tell the difference in the taste of the result. Though some people say that you can't make good coffee without a briki. Regarding sugar, again, as far as I know, most people drink their coffee black without any sugar or milk. I'd say that about half of the people I've asked prefer it this way, that is black, though again, it can't be representative when projected on the wider population. From the other half, I'd say about 30% add milk to their coffee but no sugar, and the rest, the other 20% add co- uh, add uh, sugar. I don't know about some defined quantity that you should add. Everyone just adds as much as they have figured out that they liked. Also, many people like a bit of cinnamon in their coffee. That's a great trick. I forgot about that one. I'm gonna have to... um, I'll have to revisit that. I used to do that um, after reading Frank Herbert's Dune, one of my favorite books, Uh, and he was always talking about melange in the coffee and how it tasted like cinnamon or felt like cinnamon, smelled like cinnamon. I thought, I'm gonna put some cinnamon in my coffee pretend like it's milage, and that's what I used to do for a while. So one more bit of information, this is Alexi again. We also use this recipe, especially when you can't make your coffee properly, or you don't have a briki, or a pot, or a stove to cook it upon. Let's say you're at work, in an office, so you don't have this so-called instant coffee, no way. Some people call it, and that, by the way, this is Klaatu again, that I I approve, instant coffee is the absolute worst, and I just should not It really shouldn't even exist, frankly. But anyway, Alexei says, Some people call this Polish coffee, but I don't know if it really has anything to do with Poland or not. I'm gonna guess this is clattoo, I'm gonna guess not, but I, I will I do have to admit that when I go to the Polish Community Center here in Wellington, New Zealand for, for various events um, and for pierogies, uh, I, I do have coffee and a lot of times it really is. It's it's really not very good coffee. So I don't know. I'm not saying all Polish coffee is not good, I'm just saying it does check out. Um you should warm your cup with boiling water just to make the cup hot. Pour the water away. Then you take one or two heaping teaspoons of finely ground coffee. If it's not finely ground, the taste may be a bit flat, or you'll have to add more coffee powder. You just put it into your cup and pour boiling water in. Stir it, covering it with something like a little plate or a saucer, and give it several minutes. Some, se- some people say two to three, uh, no more, and then some other people say five to eight. You'll have more sludge like this, and gourmands say coffee can't give it the full t- give up their full, the full flavor in this case, but many people do it, and I like it this way too. So that is a super informative uh, email. This is like ZFS information level email. This is like a this is everything I would have wanted to know about coffee in in other regions. And let's admit it 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 is the perfect opening for a discussion of coffee around the world. And I would I am perfectly happy for other people to contribute to this conversation, but this let this be the kickoff. So first of all, I'm going to tell you how. I'm going to tell you about coffee in America. So, American coffee, there there are lots of different kinds of American coffee, but the, I, I would say, personally, the the quintessential American cup of coffee, and this is going to pain a lot of people to hear this, but it really, it's true, it's, it's when you go to, you find a roadside diner, and you sit down at the diner, and you order a cup of joe, and you get a cup of coffee that has been, this is how they make it, they put it into a... Paper filter. They put coffee grounds. It's a very coarse grind, so it's it's kind of like if you think of the texture, or like if you think of a of a yeah of a bunch of like sesame seeds or maybe poppy seeds. That's kind of the the, the grind that we're talking about. It's not very powdery at all. It's coarse. So you put that in a paper filter, and you put the paper filter in a in a, in this little sort of bucket with a hole in the bottom, and and then you let the automated machine pour water. Uh, boiling water into this into this bucket, into this tray, and the coffee kind of steeps. It, it sort of steeps there because the water can't pass immediately through the paper filter. So it, it takes a, a while for the coffee that has been steeping in... Uh, the, the water that has been steeping, steeping in these coffee grounds to kind of gather up enough and then to sort to, to of drip through the paper filter into the coffee pot. Now, in diners, the coffee pot is usually kept on a, a hot plate so so as to keep the coffee warm. Now, if you're there in the morning when everyone I- there is having a cup of coffee, then you're getting pretty fresh coffee. You're getting this filtered coffee pretty quickly. Pretty pretty quickly after it has been filtered. So it it is not it's it's pretty fresh and you get it and it, it tastes like uh, American coffee. Now if you're there in the afternoon or you know sometime in the wee hours of the night when there hasn't been a whole lot of traffic, you're looking at a cup of coffee f- that's been sort of sitting on this hot plate and it's not terribly hot. It hasn't been boiling, but it is hot enough, right? And there's been evaporation happening and there's been recooking. And so you you get a much different flavor of coffee that sometimes literally can affect you physically. like it it is a it is it sometimes you can have coffee that is so old and bad that you walk out with wobbly knees. I mean, it's just it's a it's a it, it's really it's a game of roulette, not Russian roulette, just roulette. and and that's that's kind of I mean honestly if 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 you're looking for a sort of the American take on coffee—that really is it—and I realize that that's a little bit painful to say because a lot of people think, "Well, that's not—that's not what I think of as American coffee." But I mean honestly that is, that, that's American coffee. Now in the home, you'll have kind of a similar setup. You'll have, in most American homes, in many American homes, you'll have a similar setup. You'll have a coffee maker and you'll with a little tray, and you put the paper filter in, you put the coffee in the filter, and then you put the water in, and you turn it on, and it, it, it boils the water, pushes it down into the tray, and it goes into the coffee pot. And again, same kind of deal. As long as you... You know, if you're early to the breakfast table and you're poured a cup of coffee, then you're probably okay. You've gotten a good cup of coffee that's pretty fresh, and it has a distinctive flavor. And by distinctive, I mean that paper filter is not without flavor. So part of the American cup of coffee is the... Is the brand and kind of filter that they use now. Some fancier coffee pots nowadays, or coffee mechanisms nowadays, have metal trays or metal um, filters that you know, so that you don't have to use paper. But paper is still very, very common in America for the for the filtration, and and that's just how it that's how it goes. So you never have sludge at the bottom of your cof- of your American coffee. That that doesn't exist not what happens. It's all filtered out by that paper filter, and, and instead, you just have coffee that tastes a little bit like paper. Just a little bit. And I would say it's probably equal parts uh, black, milk, milk and sugar. Like, that's that's pretty common. Now, what is Also unique about American coffee is that the typical thing that you put into your coffee to make it white is called half and half. Not everyone knows this term, half and half. And all that is, and I used to think it was a very common thing, but actually outside of America people don't know what that means. Americans listening, they know exactly what I'm talking about right now, but half and half is uh, half milk and half cream. That's what half and half is. They may not have known that, but but that is actually what half and half is. That's why it's called half and half. It's half milk, half cream. So it, it is somewhere between a very thick substance and a very watery substance, and it's, it's a little bit milky, a little bit creamy, and it's quite good in coffee. Actually, I, to me that's the the right thing to put in coffee. But you cannot find half and half outside of America that I've. Maybe you can in, like, Canada or something, but but outside of that Northern American continent, I don't know where to find it. People don't even know what it is. In New Zealand, if I wanted to create half-and-half, I would have to buy cream, and I would have to buy milk, and then I'd have to buy a third container, and then I would put half of one and half of the other in that, and that would be half-and-half. I've never done that, but I could do that if I wanted to, if I I wanted half-and-half. Generally, people in America generically call that creamer. Coffee creamer. Now, actually, what coffee creamer is in real life? Not half and half. It's it's a it's a fake substance. It's a uh, oil that has been whipped and beat into sort of a creamy substance and flavored, and that's coffee creamer. But people generally call it creamer, no matter what. Some people don't. It's a, probably a regional thing. But half and half is the kind of the thing that most Americans expect when you say, "Oh, do you how do you want your coffee with? You, you get coffee with cream. It's not really cream. It's half and half." Okay. So I say all of that because outside of America, it's very, very different. But let's stay in America for a moment and talk about the other kinds of coffee. So, older Americans will know uh, percolators, and percolators is the other, for me, quintessential kind of American coffee. And it's just about as bad because the percolator has, I think, again, a paper filter on the inside. You put the coffee in this paper filter, and then the percolator itself starts to boil water. As water boils, it is forced upward through um, a hose at the to, to the top of the system, the water goes into the, the filter and seeps through down into the bottom, where it continues to boil and then more, you know, and so you, you've got this sort of this internal cycle of, of boiling liquid being forced up through this hose back down through coffee beans descending back down into the basin, and that's, that's your percolated coffee. People critique this strongly because you do have kind of you know you're you're making coffee and then you're making more coffee with the coffee until it's just and then and then it's just water that's sort of mixing in with the coffee and yeah it's not a super precise method. I personally love it. I I was visiting some relatives, not relatives, but sort of relatives, a couple of years ago, and uh, this this elderly lady offered a cup of coffee and she was making it in a percolator and it tasted amazing. It was like all these memories rushing back because that's how my mom used to make it. So percolator coffee is pretty... I think I feel like it's old, kind of old school, but it is quite good. And and by good I mean, you know, it's American. It's American coffee. So obviously the other ways in America would just be the, the, the sort of the, the gourmet ways, which would be things like, oh, I'm going to use an espresso machine, or I'm going to make a cappuccino, or I'm going to use an espresso stovetop machine, and so on. So we'll get to that later, but since those are not... those are those are Americans borrowing from afar, so we're going to now take our tour elsewhere out of America. And if you have more American quintessential coffee stories, send them to me. I'm happy to hear them. But those, those for me, that those are kind of the... those typify an American cup of coffee. So, Certainly in New Zealand, the typical uh, c- cup of coffee is, is made from an espresso machine. Uh, that's, that's how most people expect to get a coffee in New Zealand, or at least in Wellington. I don't know about anywhere else, because I've only lived in Wellington so far, but it's definitely an espresso machine kind of culture. And an espresso machine is nice. I mean, and we're talking about one of those big cafe espresso machines, right? So they are nice because you can do a lot of different things with them. You could do the cappuccino, you can do the latte, you can do the flat white, you can do the long black, you can do all these things. You can do an Americano, right? So in many parts of the world, a coffee is expected, at least as far as I can tell, it's expected to be some form of espresso or, or an espresso-derived Ah uh, drink. and and that goes for for France in my experience, it goes for Mexico in my experience. Places that I've been, that seems to be the common expectation that when you say coffee, that's what you want. Now, if you want an American-style cup of coffee, then you order an Americano, and they give you something that most Americans would not identify as an American cup of coffee, which is an espresso with some hot water poured into it. So it's kind of emulating the percolator thing, except not really. But it does kind of work. I mean, if if you're not looking for a cappuccino, you're looking for just more coffee than something else, then Americanos work, and they're... They're generally quite good, but in the home, most New Zealanders, no, most Kiwis, they're not going to have an espresso machine all for themselves. I mean, they might. Unquestionably, they might. My upstore, my upstairs neighbor has one, so it's, it's it. It's a, it's a thing, but a lot of people don't have that, and so they use one of those coffee presses. And the coffee presses seem to be very, very popular around here. I have one at home, that's how I have my daily cup of coffee. The idea is that you have a, not a vase, but a, a container, a thing that you pour something out of, and you put your coffee grounds in there, and again, a, core, a pretty coarse gr- grind. You pour some boiling water into it. You let it steep for a while, and then you press down with a metal filter, usually, to kind of keep the coffee grounds at the bottom while you pour out the the coffee that you want to drink. And that's usually the that's the kind of typical cup of coffee. If you're visiting a friend or going to an event, uh, the, then they'll they'll very frequently have filtered. The, that's what they'll give you is 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 a filtered cup of coffee made in, in what they call either a plunger or a press. Some people call it a press. And then last, I guess, but not least, we've got, um, Italy is where I know this from, but I don't know if it's actually that common in, in, in Italy. Maybe someone can tell me, but there is an espresso. I think, I, I I think, uh, my friend Harley told me it was called a a mocha or something like that. A mocha. M O K A. I don't know if that's a brand name or the the name of the thing. I'm not really sure. But it's an espresso. Um, it's a it's a sort of an hourglass shaped um, device that or or um, container that you place directly on the stove. You put the water in the bottom container. You put coffee grinds grounds in a um, a little uh, netted or a, a, a yeah. Let's call it a netted. Um, device in the middle you screw the the two parts together the coffee the, the water boils it is forced through the coffee in the middle in the center and it comes up at the top portion of this of this um, container of this jug and now you've got really nice espresso coffee at the top of uh, you know sitting on the top of your of of this multi part jug, and, and you pour that and drink it. Now, I, I usually use that to make an Americano, uh, because the espresso that it makes, or at least that I make, is very very strong, generally. Um, by accident, probably because I'm doing it wrong, but, but that's a great method. I love that method. The only problem with that method I have sometimes is that there's this little rubber sort of ring that goes around the center part to stop, you know, to keep the coffee from splashing everywhere, and that tends to decay more quickly than I would prefer it to decay. And again, it might just be a question of, of quality of the actual uh, of the of the pot of the coffee pot i'm not sure but that's that's the other way to make coffee that i, I believe is fairly fairly typical the idea of making coffee in a breki little pot on the stove where the coffee and the water are just mixed together is completely foreign to most, well certainly to most Kiwis, to most Americans, it's just not something that people even think would make sense. I've I've talked to people about it, they act like they know what I'm talking about, and then I make them a cup and they, they ask me what on earth they are drinking, because they always think that I'm actually thinking of that stovetop espresso um, coffee pot from Italy. So, I, I don't know why, because I tell them very specifically that I, I, I explain it very precisely, but I guess they just don't quite, I guess they don't agree with my description. But yeah, that's those are the different kinds of coffee makings that I know of, and I would love to hear about more. I think that would be really interesting, because this, the, the note about all these Russian um, coffee tips, it's just fantastic. You know, and I'm going to try this tip of, of making a sort of a quick and dirty cup without, you know, just pour boiling water in the coffee and then cover it for a couple of minutes. I'm going to try that. I want to tr- I wanna taste what that... I want to experience that flavor. So, yeah, this is really great information and has nothing to do with technology, but is really, really cool. And, and I, I I feel, for a podcast that has a an episodic coffee break, I do believe that this discussion has been in scope. And, I mean, honestly, it's also made me thirsty for coffee. So let's go get a cup of coffee right now. However you make it is okay, as we've established and and then we'll come back for some talk about U disks. Finish up the T series in, or not the T series. I keep saying series. The 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 things that start with the letter T. A couple of episodes ago, and so, or was that just last episode? I don't know. This is in the future for me, so I'm I'm not clear on 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 the timeline. But um, now we're on onto the U category, and that starts with U-discs, but puzzlingly it starts with U-discs twice, and so I had to look into that a little bit. So I wasn't sure why both version 1 and version 2 of U-discs w- would be installed on my on my machine by default. And it just turns out that apparently the the version 1 of Udisks apparently has a handy little tool called Udisks, and version 2 of Udisks has a handy little tool called Udisks Control. And both are useful things, so both are installed. As, uh, that's as far as I can tell. And indeed, Udisks is kind of handy. I'm discovering through looking at all of these applications, really, that maybe it was when I started learning Unix, which I don't feel like was that, you know, that long ago, although you know time does have a habit of of passing. So I, I have to admit that it's been a while. I, I think I've probably mentioned this before on the show that I'm still adjusting to the idea that I'm mentally adjusting to the idea that I'm a Linux user for a decade now. like i'm I'm a serious, I'm an actual Linux user, and that's all I use. that that kind of it means something. and 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 in this case, it means, and sort of a negative thing that that I don't know some of the newer tools. So Udisks I guess must be a newish tool, either that or it's not a very well publicized tool because I certainly never heard of it when I was learning this stuff. And and for years I remember going to tutorial sites on how to do one thing or another and the 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 uh, canonical set of steps that they would have for you to find out, you know, if it was anything having to do with a disk, they would do things like plug in your your drive and then do a dmessage type tail to see what has just been attached. Or they would say, do an ls of dev and then sd uh, asterisk to see all the different the drives. Or they would maybe pull out some, you know, parted or fdisk command where you're you're analyzing what, what's been plugged in and you're making sure that that's the right disk that you think it is and so on. And it just seems kind of Amazing to me that there's this U disks tool. So observe. So as a user now, I don't even have to become root, at least on my system. and That might might differ on yours if you don't have well, the the various permissions that that you may need to 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 do this. And and for that, of course, you would want to just type in the word groups to see what kind of groups you're um you're you're a member of, and that would probably tell you or at least give you a hint of of what kind of permissions you do or don't have. So, uh, as a user, I'm doing udisks, that's U-D-I-S-K-S, dash dash, monitor. And this is, this is neat. So, it says now, um, it says, monitoring activity from the disk's daemon. Press Control c to cancel. So now, if I take a thumb drive, which I have right here, and plug it into my computer, which I'm trying to do, there we go, pops up a little message in my terminal, added org free desktop udisks devices sdf and added org free desktop udisks devices sdf1. Now that's not the, the most friendly output. I mean, I don't know what the org free desktop udisks devices is going to mean to most people, but certainly the sdf and the sdf1 confirm that the drive I've just plugged in has been designated sdf and sdf1. So that's great. So I'm going to Control C out of that. Now I'm going to do udisks dash dash enumerate. This isn't really a necessary step by any means. I just want to show you the. I want to demonstrate that there's there are useful components to this tool. So udisks dash dash enumerate, and then I'm actually I'm going to pipe it through sort because it's useful, but it ain't that useful because it comes out unsorted. So piping it through sort gives you org free desktop disks devices, SDA, and then blah blah blah, SDA1, SDA2, SDB, SDC, and so on. So it it, it enumerates all the the block devices attached to your computer right now, uh, including the SDF and the SDF1 that I had just plugged in. So... Uh, that's good. So now watch this, dear listener. I'm going to do, well, you can't watch it, so listen to this, dear listener. udisks dash dash mount, and this is as a regular user, keep in mind, slash dev slash sdf1 return. And it says mounted org free desktop udisks devices sdf1 at slash media slash white8. GB, which is the name of the thumb drive, because it's a white thumb drive that is 8 gigabytes in size. Uh, so if I go out to my file manager now, in the in the GUI for instance, I should be able to find white8GB, there it is, and it's mounted. It's mounted as a user, without any kind of root permissions or anything like that. Uh, it's It's mounted from the terminal as a user for everyday use. So it's really, really useful actually, and it's one of those things that I don't really feel like we know about. We don't talk about this in the Linux world, and that's kind of strange to me. So then there's um, certainly udisks-unmount of uh, sdf1, and so now that's unmounted, so I could now pull it out of the computer. There are some some other commands, but they're they're a little bit, I guess, I would say less useful. I, I guess another one is show-info. So udisks-show-info slash dev slash sdf1, and there you have a lot of information about the drive itself, the native path, the device, the device file. This is all stuff that you would you might be able to use in a udev rule for instance because it's got a lot of those attributes. Now udisks2 provides a an actual command, the, the package udisks2 provides a command called udiskctl and it's basically the same as what I've just demonstrated. I don't find it quite as useful to to be honest, it's a little bit um I, I I feel like it's a little bit clunky almost, but I don't know. Maybe for some purposes, maybe it's a good thing for for some use cases. But but for, for instance, to enumerate your what's uh, attached to your computer right now, you would do uh, udisks ctl dump and then the slash dev I think yeah, and then it gives you all the it gives you all the information. That you would have gotten from show-info in udisks, in a you just pipes it to a pager, either less or more, whatever you've got set for your terminal. So it's a, it's kind of information overload, in in my opinion. I mean, if all I wanted really was a list, maybe of what disks were attached to my system, then that's certainly a lot more information than I would need. And I guess I could do a udisks ctl dump slash dev, and then tell it to, or maybe I could just do can, can I just do sd asterisk no it gives you all the devs no matter what you put after that so i could pipe it to grep and then say um you know only show me block underscore devices slash sd um let's let's just grep for that string that got me closer although actually it's still everything's still duplicated or not duplicated but there's th- there's a lot of redundant information in here so yeah it's it's a bit difficult to kind of Scale it down to to something as useful as what came back from the udisks command, uh, at least in my opinion. So then there's the stat um, UDISC's ctl status and then slash dev, uh, and it it shows you that that's kind of a better way of getting sort of a, a really quick list, I guess, actually, because it shows you a high level sda sdb sdc doesn't show you the partitions in that case, so you're still not you don't get exactly, maybe, you know, maybe this is too far the other way. So, um, anyway, there is a mount command for this, and we can do essentially the same thing with that. So as user again, ctl or rather, still as user, I can do, for instance, uh, ctl mount, and then slash dev slash sdf1, And it, oh, I forgot, mount-b, dash or dash dash block-device dash for slash dev slash sdf1, and that uh, mounts it to, again, it it just, it creates a place for you uh, so that you don't have to create that for yourself, and it puts it in slash run slash media slash cl2 slash white8gb. The nice thing is that you do still have your monitor function, so you can do uDisk CTL monitor, and that will tell you when something has been... Uh, attached or unattached, you know, added, r- removed. It does again seem to be a little bit more verbose than than the other ones. Like the, it it tells you when smart is being updated and and things like that that maybe you don't actually care about for at least my use case. And 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 certainly, you know, there might be ways to to utilize this in in ways that I'm that that I wouldn't consider my use case. And and I can see how that would be Significant. This might this might deliver a, a lot more um, sort of low-level functionality. But I, I feel like the the original udisks command from udisks one is really useful for uh, from a user standpoint, and, and I I quite like that. So that's that's udisks. It's really really handy to know about. I think I think um, I'll, I'll I'll either recommend it or and or use it myself. I'm not I'm not sure which way I'll go on that one yet, but. It does seem useful to me. Okay, so next up, that's uDiscs and udiscs disks uh, two. So after those comes in the in the uh, package set is unarj or un uh, yeah unarj, and so this is a this is an interesting one. i would never heard of this. It's a command line utility for decompre- decompressing .arg archives. This is a simple tool for decompressing .arj files. ARJ, as far as I can tell, is an archaic um, archive format that I'd never heard of and probably is not super common anymore. I'm assuming it's included here in Slackware for extreme backward pack co- compatibility, which, of course, I totally respect. I mean, very, very much I respect this because, uh, I mean, that's that's great. That's one of the reasons I went to Linux was for data security, for for um, integrity of, of, of my data. So, the... Um, the way to do this, then, would be, I guess, sort of, if we... So there's no way to create an ARJ archive in, w- with un-ARJ. The un-ARJ is exclusively an extractor. So, uh, I had to download and install something called ARJ, I think is what it was called, actually. I'm gonna do it. Um, Sportcat ARJ. Yeah, a portable... So ARJ from uh, ARJ.sourceforge.net will create ARJ archives says it's a portable version of the ARJ archiver, available for a growing number of DOS-like and UNIX-like platforms on a variety of architectures. Uh, okay, great, cool. So we'll exit out of that. We'll do an ARJ... Let's see, I'm trying to find a file here that I can compress. Here's one. So ARJ and then space A for adding a file to the archive. And then we'll do just, I don't know, blah.arj there. And then this test file that I've got right here called timings.html. Some output from ffmpeg or Jack, I think. Uh, so there's uh, now we've I've created a file and it's compressed at 39.4%. And now I'll unarchive it with unarj, with uh, just giving it the name of the archive. So unarj space blah dot arj, and it uh, expands it. Strangely, it it tells me that the archive was created in 2026 0310. I'm not kidding you. Um, if I do a date command, it's my my computer reports it's 2019, so I'm guessing there must be some kind of calculation within the software itself that is offsetting that date. But it it does extract it successfully. I'll take a really quick look at the file just to make sure that it's yep it's 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 it is uh, its integrity is still there. It is not corrupted by any in any weird way. And um, that's that's that. That's the ARJ archive format. Now. ARJ is not something that I intend to ever use. I don't know a whole lot about it, except that it was archived by Robert Young, I think is the guy's name. That's what it's named for. Apparently he did another version of this called JAR, which is not the same as the Java JAR, so that's a little bit confusing. Point being, I'm not really all that keen on on this software. It's not something that's very important to me, so I'm going to remove PKG, PKG space ARJ, space unARJ arj and remove them both from my system, even though I just now installed ARJ, because that's... that doesn't come with Slackware. It, it's it's something that I had... To, in order to create one, I had to in, install a separate thing. Now, let's say that in, in some scenario I actually got an ARJ archive from someone that needed to be opened, so obviously now I know un-ARJ exists, which is handy to know. That's nice. And I also know that ARJ exists so if I need to add to an archive I can I can install and do that um, but just for your information 7zip also does ARJ archives so and certainly 7zip does a lot more than just ARJ obviously I mean it does zip and well a whole heck of a lot so I I would just you know for my for my the way I'm thinking about it is that 7zip would be the better thing to have installed if if you ever even think that you'll need to unarchive an arj you could still do that with 7zip. 7zip can by its own man page says that it can do lzma, zip, cab, arj, gzip, bzip2, tar, cpio, rpm and deb. it's kind of it's kind of a no-brainer to have that installed. So there you go, that's unarj and it is now in my tag file not to install ever again. Okay, next up is upower U power is a little bit like U disks. Uh, it's a, it's a lot more focused. It is exactly it, it 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 looks for power supplies on your system and and monitors the activity of those power supplies. On my desktop, this is not very useful. If if on my desktop there's a power disconnection, then U power uh, is going to not tell me anything because my computer's going to turn off. So. That's not useful for me here, although I, I imagine it could be useful for things like battery backups and so on. and And certainly on a laptop, it's very useful because that's how the laptop is going to know to switch over to a different kind of power and so on, or, or that the you know the state of the battery is now charging or it's not charging or whatever. So that's useful for for some cases, but not so useful for my desktop, at least not as an interactive not an interactive thing. Uh, I don't know what it's doing on my desktop enough to have the confidence to say I don't need it, so I'll just uninstall it. That that I don't feel comfortable doing, but certainly I don't feel like I'm going to actually interactively use it. But if you do, go into a terminal and type in upower space dash dash monitor. You'll be able to monitor activity from the power daemon, so that that might be useful to you. Next up is USB mode switch is a small mode-switching tool for controlling flip-flop, that is, multiple device, USB gear. These devices initially appear to be USB storage, typically containing the MS Windows driver, for whatever the real purpose of the device is, such as a wireless USB modem. To use these devices with Linux, they need to be told to switch out of storage mode, which is the purpose of the USB mode switch utility. Now, I do not have any such devices with which I could even try this. If you go to the website drivesburkhoff.de USB underscore mode switch, then you can read about some of the typical use cases for it. There are some udev rules that that you can use to to cause devices, known devices, to to switch automatically once plugged in, and so on. Okay, so th- next up is lsusb. Well, sorry, the the package name actually is, at least on Slackware, is usbutils or usbutils, as as a guy at my old job used to say. He was used to say utils or u- utils as utils. And it just, it just sounded so, so strange to me, and yet it was just so easy to say. It's just so lazy and beautiful. It's just, oh yeah, USB-Utils. It's just so e- much easier than say saying USB-Utils. Okay, so, um, USB-Utils, it contains LSUSB, USB-HID-DUMP, USB and USB-Devices. So I'll start with LSUSB because it's kind of the most straightforward. You type in LSUSB, possibly as root. Only, And it gives you a a, a list, it enumerates all the, 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 the devices that you have, or actually it enumerates all USB ports on your system, and if there's something plugged in, then it, it, it identifies that as well. So the default entry is a bunch of stuff about the bus number and the device number and stuff like that. There's a vendor and product ID, which is uh, kind of information that you could use in, for instance, a UDEV rule, and you can also get it from UDEV itself. And then the default entry is Linux Foundation 2.0 root hub, or 1.1 root hub, depending on whatever kind of device, or, or 3.0, you know, whatever kind of uh, USB port it is. If something is plugged into it, then it instead of saying Linux Foundation, and then the kind of USB port it is, it gives you some kind of vendor string. And sometimes that might look familiar to you, and sometimes it might not look familiar or make sense to you at all. For instance, I happen to know what a Plantronics is, or the the Plantronics device plugged into the USB is. Well, the thing that I'm talking over right now, I, I know that. I know that here, where it says Logitech M90 M100 Optical Mouse, well, that's that's the mouse I'm using right now. But here on this next line, China Resource Simico Co. Limited, no clue. Could be a thumb drive. Could be. Um. Could be anything. Could be the monitor because my monitor has a. USB sort of little miniature port in it, so there's that. Could be could be any number of things. There's a Genesis Logic Inc. Hub. That's probably the monitor, actually. And then there is... Uh, here's a Logitech F310 gamepad, so that's obviously my my gaming... Uh, my game controller. And then here's a Toshiba External Disk, so that's the external drive upon which I put all of the new World Order episodes uh, when they're archived, so that's what's plugged into my Computer, it's pretty clear and pretty obvious. lsusb -t, as in tree. Now you can't actually do dash, dash, tree. It's it's a short short object only or short option only. So dash, -t, lsusb -t gives you sort of what they call a tree view. I'm not 100% sure what everything is telling me here. There's a lot of information in sort of a, a tree-like view. I just don't know how to interpret it myself. It might be something useful for you. W- one thing that is useful, though, is that it identifies very clearly the driver that is being used by the device that is plugged in. So, for instance, although I can't tell, really, there's no what I would call a human... I mean, it is human-readable, but I mean, it's it's certainly not human-friendly identification, but, but this device here on bus 04 port 1 device 1 class is the root underscore hub, driver equals OHCI PCI slash 5P, nothing, that doesn't tell me anything, but underneath that, it it, it continues to say that the driver equals XPAD. So that, by that I know that the XPAD driver is being used to control, or to to manage, to talk to my game controller, my F310 Logitech game controller. I, I also happen to know that that's not the optimal driver for that device. So what I would normally do, what I would do if I was going to play a game on this computer right now is unload the XPad driver and load the Xbox DRV driver, which is a Linux driver for Xbox-compatible devices, which just happens to be a, a pretty easy way to get a game controller working on Linux, is just to use an Xbox-compatible device, plug it in, use the Xbox DRV, that's the driver, and you can configure it a couple of different ways, and you're, you're up and running pretty quickly. So that's kind of a useful thing about lsusb dash, dash t Other options include dash s, where you can kind of limit what LSB usb tells you by the bus or the device number, or dash d to limit it by the vendor and the product number, which are those numbers that I mentioned earlier that you could get from Udev. It just shows, shows you a hexadecimal string, one for vendor, one for product, so for Plantronics, for instance, 047f colon c006. I'm assuming the f- 047F is probably a designator for Plantronics. C006 is probably the designator for this particular uh, model number, or whatever, this model of of the headphone. Okay, so the next one is uh, USB devices, which gives you a lot of information. And again, I'm not even sure how to interpret it all, because it's it's information that I've never really needed. But, I mean, there's a lot of information here it it tells you the bus the level the port the device number and then eventually in 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 each block it kind of tells you what you're looking at so for instance i just happened to press control c at the right moment and i see that the manufacturer equals plantronics the product equals plantronics.audio626dsp and so on so there's a lot of information there which honestly i don't know what you would do with that information and then the the final one that i'm not going to do because it could, um, it kind of interferes in some cases with the kernel talking to your USB devices. So it's usb-hid-dump. dash I'm assuming this is something to, to get a, well it is, it's to get a stream dump of what is happening with USB devices. Now I don't want to do that right now, but if you, if you want to see that in action, you can do that. You can do usb-hid-dump. I'm going to just do a dash-h for help. And then you can tell it what, what devices you want a dump from. I think, by default, it dumps a stream of of everything, of all devices attached, I think. But you can limit it to um, dash dash address equals and then bus colon device, or you can do dash dash model equals vendor ID uh, colon product ID. You can do... Um, I think a dash i or dash dash interface equals, and that's an interface by number zero through two fifty four with two fifty five matching all of them, and so on. So there's a couple of different ways to get that. it It gives you a very raw dump of information from your USB device. And I'm like I say, I'm not going to do that now because that can if you if, if if you do it right, you can interfere with the communication. And that could cut off my microphone, and I wouldn't want to have to redo this segment. So there you go but that is uh, usb hid dash dump and if you're uh, if you're you know writing a driver for a usb device or some something like that then that's probably something that you would want to look at or maybe it's useful f- for debugging I don't know I've never used it so here's something interesting it's called u this is uh, the next one in the in the package set here so u u t e m p t e r is, according to its little description file here, the utimpter package provides a utility and shared library that allows terminal applications such as xterm and screen to update slash var slash run slash utmp and slash var slash log slash wtmp without requiring root privileges. So yeah, you're not going to use this directly. This is more like a, a, a system utility. This is something that'll get that'll get used by other things, and you will not interact with it directly. And, and in fact, you probably won't even interact directly with what it interacts with directly, which is UTMP, or I guess, what did what it say, UTMP or WTMP or something like that. Um, and, and those are those are systems in, in Unix-like systems that manage, the or, or rather, track the logins and logouts of a system. So when you type in just the letter W, I don't know if you've ever used this command or not, but um, I, I used to use it all the time at work because we, had a, we were on a true multi-user system, so it was always interesting to see who was logged in where. So W uh, queries the W, well, I think it's the WTMP system. I've never actually, I've never verified that, but I've assumed that that's what that is. So if you, if you type in uh, w or even who those are are methods of querying the the UTMP slash WTMP system and I the the way that it, I've understood that it breaks down just from reading up on it on Wikipedia was UTMP or UTMP is the tracking of the current the current status of the of of the system so who's logged in right now. Uh, at which terminals are they logged in? That sort of thing. Wtmp is the historical version of that. So who, when was the last time so so and so logged in? And then btmp records failed login attempts. So if you've ever tried to log into a server and then you got you got a message, you know there there have been there was one failed login attempt, you know since you've been gone or something like that. That is that is a a, a query of btmp. So those, those are um, those are utmp, wtmp, and btmp. They are not plain text files. They are binary formats. So you you cannot y- you you could I mean you can do a cat of slash var slash run slash utmp, but and you'll see some strings in there, but it won't it won't be super obvious uh, to you what it all means. And and so really. Generally, the you know the the method to query it is to interact with it with other with other tools like w and and who. The way that you can uh, the, the the way that other tools can interact with it without being root, obviously, which is what kicked this whole conversation or this this whole discussion off, is uTempter. So there you go. That's that's the uTempter tool. Now the final uh, u package in the A package set is called util-linux, util-linux. And it's kind of a beefy one, so I'm not going to cover it in this episode, because I wouldn't want to rush through it. I mean, I don't think it's really, like, like that huge, because most of the commands are pretty straightforward, but they are really kind of important, important commands. Like, there's dmessage, there's uh, host name, kill, lsblk, which I was just talking about, more, mount, mount point, set term, umount, wdctl. So there are git opt. There are, there are a couple of in there that, that probably just deserve kind of looking at without feeling pressed for time. And we're up against the closing theme music, which of course you know I cannot stop. So I'll bid you a farewell for now, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can email me at clatu@member.fsf.org. at member.fsf.org, that's clatu@member.fsf, at member.fsf, as in Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.